It is my pleasure to welcome Rory McFarquhar. Rory worked for the Obama administration from 2010 to February 2016. In the later years, he served as a special assistant to the president and senior director uh, for global economics and finance in the White House National Security Council and the National Economic Council. Rory led a, a series of teams working on a wide range of international economic and trade issues, including U.S.-China economic relations, economic support for the Ukraine, Tunisia, and Iraq. Today, Rory is at the Peterson Institute for International Economics as a visiting fellow. Welcome, Rory. It's a pleasure to have you with us today talking about American foreign policy in the age of Trump. Thank you very much for having me. It's a pleasure. So, I mean, obviously the big question uh, is exactly whether or not the liberal order uh, can survive the age of Trump. But let me, let me try and raise a question and put it in some context. For many decades now, uh, many analysts have acknowledged that the United States is kind of the leading actor in the international system. Bill Clinton and then presidents and foreign policy leaders after him often referred and still refer to the United States as the indispensable nation. Um, my colleague, uh, who is one of the, the real liberal analysts, John Eikenberry at Princeton, always acknowledge that the United States was the leading power in the system. So how does the liberal order respond to an America-first foreign policy? So I think that's a, it's a great question and obviously a question that will be um, asked in many capitals around the world as, as, as countries look uh, somewhat askance at what's going on currently in, in Washington. Certainly, historically, the United States has led the liberal order. It led the establishment of the key institutions that form the international uh, economic and financial architecture in the wake of World War II. Obviously, it was one of the poles during the Cold War that represented the quote-unquote free world. And in the post-Cold War world, it's been the United States that has really taken the lead to bring the, the formerly communist countries into the established liberal system. The United States has been historically throughout the, the, the leading country. And um, I can say from my own experience in the U.S. government that that can be felt very tangibly as we engage in fora like the G7 or the G20, where many countries have ideas, many countries have interests, many countries have preferences. But at the end of the day, it's always been the United States that has had to ha take positions on pretty much every issue and drive forward the international cooperative agenda. And so now that we have a an administration that 
at least rhetorically, has expressed a great deal of skepticism that this current system is working in the interests of the United States. Obviously, that that throws the whole modus operandi of that system into doubt, because there is no country positioned to take the leadership role that the United States has occupied uh, since, since World War II. Certainly not China, although we've heard President Xi Jinping in recent speeches, um, including at Davos in January, but not only there, essentially asserting that China was ready to take on this mantle of the of the leading power in support of the current system. But I think that those of us who have been watching China fairly closely uh, receive those speeches with some amount of cynicism, because, frankly, China has been much more of a free rider on the system in recent decades. And even today, many of its practices in the trade area especially uh, are taking advantage of of loopholes in global trading rules, or even violating the spirit, if not the letter, of global trading rules, rather than taking a leading role in enforcing them. And similarly, Germany cannot assume the mantle that the United States has held, although many people today have been looking to Chancellor Merkel as the supposed leader of the free world. Um, Germany can do it for a number of reasons. First and foremost, because of its history, I, I, the German uh, political establishment is very reluctant to be overly assertive in international affairs. Uh, Germany as a country has deliberately shackled itself into uh, the European Union as a way of embracing a much more collaborative approach to policymaking. Um, and to avoid this concept of Germany as a, a unilateral leader in the way that the United States has had no such qualms about playing. And obviously, the European Union has its own set of economic challenges that also will be consuming Germany and will be preventing it from taking a, a global view in the way that the United States has been able to do. So what does that mean for where we are today? Well, first of all, on the question of an America-first foreign policy. It's important to recognize that that's a, a somewhat pejorative, but it, it, the, the insinuation of that phrase is that somehow the United States has not been putting America first in its foreign policy in the past, which is clearly not the case. Every country at all times puts its own country first in foreign policy terms. That is the definition of, of a country pursuing its interests in foreign policy. The, the difference in the way the United States has been behaving is that in addition to narrowly pursuing its own short-term interests, it has recognized that it has a broader and longer-term interest, again, still, still an American interest, in providing public goods to the system as a whole. What are those public goods? Well, one of the public goods is providing for international security in its alliance networks in Europe, in Asia, and in the rest of the world. Another set of public goods consists of 
supporting some of these economic institutions that underpin the global system and, frankly, include the use of the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency. Uh, we have seen this not as us putting the interests of the residents of other countries ahead of the interests of American citizens. We, as American policymakers, have, have determined that um, it is in the interests of U.S. citizens to uh, support these, um, these, these global public goods and to create a system in which U.S. economic actors, companies, workers could flourish on a level playing field. Now, the Trump phenomenon is, in some sense, a rejection of the idea that these public goods have actually served our interests. It is a claim that there has simply been too much free riding on the system by both allies in the security realm who, in Trump's view, have not been paying their fair share to protect themselves. And in the trade area, the, the idea that we have created rules that other countries have either violated with impunity or found loopholes to exploit in ways that have disadvantaged the U.S. economy. Now, there is a grain of truth in both of those assertions, and that, I think, has been, to a large extent, what has propelled Trump forward. So it is true, for example, that NATO countries have been spending less than the 2% of GDP that they have committed to spend on their own defense. Not long before Trump came onto the scene, this has been a long-standing complaint of U.S. policymakers in Europe. And it's the only difference with, with Trump in this circumstance is that he has essentially made it a deal-breaker and implied that the U.S. wouldn't necessarily fulfill its commitments in NATO, the core commitment of coming to the defense of an ally if attacked, if that ally had not been making the, the, the expected 2% of GDP contribution. And that is a, a, a fairly shocking threat, but it's obviously the uh, one way of playing hardball to, to end the free riding that, that, that we have long perceived has taken place within NATO. Yeah. Um, in the trade area, similarly, um, there are certainly many cases where the current uh, international system is falling short and many issues on which the U.S. Has, has, has been at the losing end of rules that, for one reason or another, uh, ha do not um, adequately uh, create a, a level playing field in the 21st century. So there's certainly progress that can be made there, but... Uh, there is also a risk of throwing the proverbial baby out with the bathwater by blowing up institutions that really for many decades have served us very well, rather than moving forward incrementally to improve them and to build on them 
in a way that, that we have been trying to over many years. As the president and now the administration begins to kind of deal with um, international governance, and, uh, you know, let, let's first kind of go to the uh, meeting uh, between the president and uh, Chancellor uh, a Angela Merkel on Friday and the press conference that followed that meeting, you know, I guess the question is, what did the, at least through the press conference, what did uh, that reveal about, you know, this relationship, given that Germany is, as you've pointed out, a very important ally, it's very important in the context regionally of the European Union, and indeed regionally in the context of NATO, all those different uh, institutions. Uh, and in fact, uh, Germany now is, or uh, the German presidency uh, holds uh, the G20 uh, coming up in July. So she is now uh, hosting uh, a G20 and, and all the activities. So, you know, do we have a better sense uh, of where this administration is, given this particular meeting? Well, I think what we saw very vividly on display on Friday was an extreme clash of temperaments. Mm -hmm. On the one side, a very deliberative, careful, um, low-key, thoughtful, intellectual leader uh, on the German side and on the American side, you know, a, a an impulsive showman with a with a unique approach to the truth, um, and so it was much anticipated that they would not immediately hit it off. In fact, as it has been pointed out, Merkel hasn't necessarily immediately hit it off with Trump's two predecessors either, but over time. She certainly developed a very close understanding and uh, close relationship with Barack Obama in a way that is harder to envision developing with Trump. And obviously related to the differing temperaments is this basic difference in attitude to the international order. Even um, if Merkel had not been uh, responsible for orchestrating a successful G20 summit this year in Hamburg, uh, she would still um, almost certainly be advocating for uh, a lot of the positions and, and, and institutions that have been under fire from uh, Donald Trump. And the fact that the G20 is also in play only, only adds another complication. So, so the challenge for Merkel will be to find a, an optimal combination of, on the one hand, pushing back on the more unilateralist and even isolationist impulses of the Trump administration where necessary, um, without inflaming them further. So let me take you then to another meeting that occurred this weekend, and this was the meeting of the finance ministers and central bankers in Baden-Baden, Germany. And this is the first of several meetings that will take place as, as you move towards the G20 summit. 
and obviously, uh, finance minister is very pleased to have Steve Mnuchin there. It was his first meeting. He's the new uh, American Treasury Secretary. But, you know, it was clear that Mnuchin either didn't have instructions or was taking the position that the phraseology uh, resist all forms of protectionism was not going to be in the communique that, in fact, the United States was blocking uh, that phraseology. So what is this telling us then about a U.S. trade policy with its allies and with even more than its allies? Well, I mean, there's no question that this is a, a pretty disappointing and shocking turn of events for the United States and for the world system. I mean, the, to, to put this specific commitment in context, when the G20 was formed as a leader's process, it was at the very height of the global financial crisis, which even at the time everyone recognized was the most serious financial crisis since 1929, and that the way countries reacted to it would determine whether we essentially had a repeat of the Great Depression or even something worse, or whether we would learn the lessons of the 1930s. And one of the key lessons was that an exacerbating factor in the 1930s was the wave of protectionism that was actually kicked off by the Smoot-Hawley tariff in the United States. Um, but then uh, spread across the, the major economies. And that, the, the kinds of beggar thy neighbor policies, both on the trade front and on, on currency devaluations and so on, seriously worsened the um, severity of, of the Great Depression. And so when leaders met in Washington, London, and Pittsburgh in 2008, 2009, there was a determination that we would not go down that path. And so, therefore, one of the key commitments was that countries would not pursue protectionism. And that commitment has been restated in every, certainly every leader's communique ever since then. And it has been um, one of the cornerstones of the entire uh, G20 leaders process. And obviously, this is another case where the idea and, and the leadership initiative came from the United States. And so, therefore, to see the United States being the one to have this commitment removed from a communique is a very, very serious um, and, again, disappointing development from the perspective of international policymaking and, and the international system. So um, all of that is, I think, as worrying and disappointing as it has been broadly portrayed in the media. And the fact that um, the U.S. negotiators seem to have extremely little flexibility on this, on this point shows just how clear their instructions were from, from Washington. The one thing I'll point out that I think has got a little less attention from this meeting in Baden-Baden is that if you look at this communique, this very dry document that <laughs> The, the finance ministers and central bank governors come out with at their, their meetings um, at each time throughout uh, the year, that while that specific piece has been taken out, and of course that was a 
Um, that, that, that is not an issue that either the finance ministers or the central bank governors themselves are responsible for. Right. Uh, trade, trade policy tends to be done in other parts of the government. Certainly in the U.S. system, it's done by another part of the government. But if you look at the things that finance ministers and central bank governors are responsible for, what I think is quite striking in the document is how much continuity there is. Um, so that at least for the time being, what we are not seeing is the U.S. in any way blowing up the G20 or backing away from some other of its commitments. And I think probably the most important one that is potentially at risk, given the rhetoric of the Trump administration, is the financial reform agenda, which was another key pillar of the G20 since 2008. And there, the, the issue is, first of all, that everyone recognized that the immediate cause of the financial crisis in 2008 was a, a very poorly regulated financial system that built up massive excesses in certain areas that then then blew up with very tragic consequences for, for all of our economies, and that there needed to be a significant increase in financial regulation, an increase in the amount of capital that financial institutions were required to hold, and a recognition that given the international spillovers of the financial system, given the global footprint of many financial institutions, that it was important to have an international dialogue on financial regulation and that we all had a stake in other countries maintaining high standards and not pursuing a race to the bottom in financial regulation. And the United States' contribution to the financial agenda was, was the, the Dodd-Frank Act. And as we've seen during the election campaign, Trump has had basically nothing good to say about Dodd-Frank. He said that it's in the crosshairs. And it's clear that, that one of the big areas of deregulation that this administration wants to pursue is in the financial arena. But for the time being, we haven't seen the U.S. backing away from the Financial Stability Board, which is a body that was established by the G20 in the wake of the financial crisis. We haven't seen that show up as, as yet another area where the U.S. is dissenting from what has become an international consensus, thanks to U.S. leadership in the past. Mm -hmm. Well, let me let me turn your attention to one other specific area, which uh, I, I wanted to explore briefly. Again, a meeting. And in this case, we had Secretary of State Rex Tillerson uh, in East Asia. He met with officials in Japan, in Korea, and also officials in China, including President uh, Xi Jinping. One of the things that was uh, immediately noted by uh, analysts was that uh, Secretary of State Tillerson kind of rhymed off what appear to be, you know, kind of Chinese phraseology for better relations with the United States, non-conflict, non-confrontation, uh, win-win cooperation, and then uh, the fourth one, which is mutual respect. Uh, that was something, mutual respect was something that previous administrations 
have refused to, uh, in effect, agree with in terms of China because it's not clear what China regards as the core issues for it. Does this signal some uh, significant change in U.S.-China relations? Well, I think that what it really signals is that the U.S.-China policy, or I should say China policy in the United States, is somewhat in disarray. Mm -hmm. And what you can see that in is the apparent very confusing signals that are being sent uh, by Tillerson alone, let alone by other people in the administration. So you, uh, on the one hand, he's made very incautious, even extreme threats on the South China Sea, um, which, while it's certainly uh, wise for the U.S. to take a robust position in the South China Sea, the, we should, certainly shouldn't be making threats that we have no ability to actually follow through on. He's also been trident positions on, on North Korea. Again, um, it's the most important thing in, in international relations is, to, is to, to mean what you say. And, um, and so, so that's a, a, a serious issue. And then, of course, the, the other uh, very stark reversal that we saw from the president was when on the, he, he starts off by throwing into question the, the longstanding uh, one China policy that, that has been one of the, the, the key underpinnings of our, our dialogue with the Chinese over the last 30 years. And then coming back and restating the one China policy in order to secure a phone call with uh, President Xi. So there have been these very, very confusing mixed signals that, that the U.S. has been sending. And I think that it's literally due to um, a, a combination of inexperience by people at the top and a lack of backup by confirmed officials just below them. Mm -hmm. uh, as well known in the State Department, there's only one Senate-confirmed official currently in the building, which is Tillerson himself. And so all other policy areas are being um, temporarily filled by career foreign service people who don't seem to have very close connections to the secretary himself. So, so when he starts essentially... Uh, reciting a Chinese mantra to the international media. I mean, I, that that was a very shocking moment, I think, for a lot of us uh, <laughs> looking on. And it, it, there are some of these mantras that are are important. And I think that the one China policy is an example of a mantra where really it, it's needed to just to, to get the conversation going. But to then talk about non-confrontation, win-win cooperation, and and mutual benefit, mutual respect, um, is just—I mean, it's—it's—it's mumbo jumbo. It doesn't make it mean anything in English, and insofar as it means something in Chinese, it means something that we don't actually want it to mean, because we <laughs> certainly don't intend to accord China, and I don't believe that this administration intends to accord China a sphere of core interests which we we will not get involved in in any way, because if we were to start doing that to essentially say, China, your backyard is your own, um, and we in the United States will accept that you care much more about it than, than we do, and so we won't get involved, then that would uh, have been a very significant um, withdrawal of U.S. involvement in East Asia. I simply don't believe that that's what 
was intended when Secretary Tillerson made those remarks. So I think that he was just he was poorly advised to, to, to say those words. And while I'm sure his hosts in China were delighted, <laughs> um, I think it's just another example of the policy confusion in many areas that we've seen over over the couple of months since the administration has taken office. Well, then uh, you seem to paint a big picture with some mixed signals, some confusion. I guess the wind-up question then becomes, and I won't hold you to it, but what do you think the liberal order is going to look like uh, at the end of a four-year Trump administration in foreign uh, political and economic policy? So obviously that's an incredibly difficult question because <laughs> sorry <laughs> they they they're only just getting going and you can paint very very different scenarios depending on which of the conflicting impulses in this white house in this administration prevails yeah and there is a optimistic view of trump which would have it that he is in fact a lot of bombast but, but at the end of the day his policies will be relatively conventional, even if they will differ from those of the last eight years by being on the Republican side of conventional rather than the Democratic side of conventional, that fundamentally they will involve uh, perhaps a slightly more contentious approach to the liberal international order, but fundamentally working within it rather than rejecting it. And then there's the the darker view that essentially the agenda is to side with nationalist movements in European countries to to support a potential breakup of the European Union itself, to scale back or even remove U.S. participation in institutions like the World Trade Organization and the International Monetary Fund, and essentially to pull the U.S. out of, of this system altogether in ways that the system simply wouldn't survive. Mm -hmm. So I think that that, I mean, I tend to be um, more of a, an optimist in life. And, and I think that we all tend to assume that the future is going to look quite a lot like the past. And so I, I certainly hope that what we're looking at is more closely resembles the first of those scenarios than the second. Um, but I can't say that with a great deal of confidence. And I think that even within this White House, you, you can see different factions that would come out on different um, places on that spectrum. And it's certainly not a given that the, the, the forces of the status quo and of uh, a more traditional view of U.S. interests in the world will prevail. I mean, that said... These are our institutions that have had that, that they've been around for so long and so many generations of U.S. officials have accepted the the logic of them that it would actually take a pretty concerted effort on the part of the Trump team to do as much damage as, as some people fear. Mm -hmm. And frankly, it's not clear that he's going to find people willing to do that. I mean, there, it is a a lot of the more extreme positions are so uh, exotic in Washington that really it's just a very, very small fringe of people who, who hold to them. And 
you can't even fill an administration with those kinds of people. There are just not enough of them. So one way or another, I think that there are some institutional and uh, inertial constraints on him doing real damage, even if he wanted to. Well, Rory, we're obviously uh, going to be looking uh, very closely at uh, this administration, the people around him, and the president himself. And I certainly uh, will be interested to see in which direction uh, ultimately the administration begins to push uh, American foreign policy, how it, you know, uh, alters the, you know, the elements of the liberal order. Uh, I'm sure we'll all be watching. I do want to thank you uh, for your insights into this uh, very complex issue of American foreign policy in the age of Trump. So thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.